Children may be dismissed to junior church, and we're going to be going to Philippians chapter 1, if you'd want to join me in Philippians chapter 1. And what a beautiful song. You know, whether you, um, whether these songs are new to you or not, whether you don't know whether to sing high or low or not, I encourage you, meditate on the words. Because we're picking songs, we try to pick songs that are singable, but especially we try to pick songs that are theologically rich. Doctrinally rich, doctrinally sound. And sometimes unfamiliarity is difficult on some. Maybe that's the case on all of us. Although, let me just share just for a moment as we get into this. Some people just love anything new. New idea, bring it on, let's do it. Sometimes in business circles, they call these, uh, well, I've heard them called uh, Lewis and Clarks, you know, and different ideas. There's like a bell curve of change. Bring it on. Other people are called the laggards. You know, they don't really like new ideas. But sometimes God takes us out of our comfort zone to get our attention. And, and And I do believe We all have to pray fervently Saturday night and Sunday morning for the Lord to keep us focused. And if we are purposefully tuning out during a certain part of the worship service, whether because you don't like the music or maybe you don't like the sermon or you don't like the preacher or you don't like the prayer or whatever, that is sinfully wrong. We have the privilege, the high calling of worshiping almighty God. And it's not about me. So even if it, there are songs or, you know, that I may not like, but I know people like, and they're theologically sound, and they're okay musically, and some people want to hear them, so we do them. It's not about me. It's not about any one of you. It's, also, it's ultimately about God. It's like the people that walk out of the service, say, hey, I didn't enjoy it today. I didn't get anything out of it. Good. You weren't supposed to get anything out of it. It's about God. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. And oftentimes when we worship God and we get on our knees, metaphorically or physically, and we worship God, many times he will reciprocate and give you something out of it. He will encourage you. He will build you up. Many times he will rebuke you, but that's a good thing because he is correcting you and guiding you. It is about God. And so I challenge you, just as I challenge myself, honestly, music's not usually my language either. So, but some of you, the preaching's not your language. You like the music. I've heard people tell me, hey, I just come for the sermon. I've heard other people where I know they just love the music. We need both. We need the music because we need the arts. That's part of worship. And we need the message because we need the word of God. And I challenge you to intentionally make yourself focus on the worship songs. And nobody should be, no Christian should be intentionally distracting themselves from worship. And if you do, I think the word of God would have some things to say about that to you. And, you know, and the reason I share all that is because that just beautiful, beautiful song, which is wonderful words about praising the name of Jesus forever. That's so awesome. You know, I'm just amazed by the words of these songs. And we get to sing them back to the Lord. I encourage you, sing them back to the Lord. So on that note, children have always been, already been dismissed to junior church. And that was just a pastoral comment at that point. A few weeks ago, thank you, Don. (laughs) And there's reasons I say those comments, because for 16 years at least in full-time ministry, 
I've heard people comment on music and worship and worship services time and time again. And you hear people say the total opposite things. You know, one person loves one thing, one does another. Look, we need to worship the Lord. It's about the Lord. And I remember watching somebody when I was in college dating Megan who taught Sunday school and he sat out of the worship service because he didn't like it. Well, you shouldn't have been teaching Sunday school then. You know, we're here to worship God. We don't have to worship God. We get to worship God. We are reconciled to God Almighty. If that doesn't amaze you, I don't know what can from the gospel standpoint at least. So now we go to Philippians 1. And in Philippians 1, we introduced Philippians. Uh, two weeks ago, we introduced Philippians. And then last week, we talked about fathers and family. And next week, we're going to talk about uh, our uh, come, Lord Jesus, come. We're going to talk about the end of Revelation, actually. And today, we're going to continue in Philippians, starting at verse 3. And, and, and notice, as we look at Philippians, we see the apostle Paul making the best of his circumstance, we see the Apostle Paul making the best of his circumstance. He's, he's, he's in prison. He's chained to a Roman centurion or, or a few, probably having shift change every day. And many times we call Philippians a church, we call this letter of Philippians to the church at Philippi, we call it the epistle of joy. It's all about joy. It's all about thankfulness. But we also see Philippians being a letter of unity, Yesterday, I was working on a sermon for about four weeks from now, and we see all about unity, too. You know, how important it is for Christians to be united. How important it is for Christians to be thankful. How important it is for Christians to be, to be joyful. There's a story. It's called uh, The Window by G.W. Target. The Window by G.W. Target. Not to be confused with that Alfred Hitchcock movie, Rear Window, or whatever that was called. You know, but this is called The Window by G.W. Target. It tells that two men, both seriously ill, and they occupy the same small hospital room. They're both seriously ill, and they occupy the same small hospital room. One man was allowed to sit up in his bed for an hour each afternoon to help drain the fluids from his lungs. His bed was next to the room's only window. So when he sat up on his bed, he was able to look out the only window. But the other man had to spend all his time flat on his back. One man gets to sit up for one hour, look out the window. The other man had to spend all his time on his back. How miserable would that be? How horrible. I can't imagine the men are roommates, and they talk for hours on end. They spoke of their wives and families, their homes, their jobs, their involvement in the military service. Where, where they also talked about where they, um, where they had been on vacation. And every afternoon, when the man in the bed by the window could sit up, he would pass a time by describing to his roommate all the things he could see outside the window. So here he is. He can sit up for one hour, look out the window, and he's describing to his roommate all that he sees. But the other man's not allowed to sit up. The other man had to lie flat on his back. The man in the bed began to live for those one-hour periods where his world would be broadened and enlivened by all the activity and the color of the outside world. The window overlooked a park with a lovely lake, the man said. Ducks and swans played on the water while children sailed their model boats. Lovers walked arm in arm amid flowers of every color of the rainbow. 
Grand old trees graced the landscape, and a fine view of the city skyline could be seen in the distance. As a man by the window described all this in exquisite detail, the man on the other side of the room would just close his eyes and imagine the picturesque picturesque scene. So just imagine, here he is describing to his roommate all that he sees. And the other man can never look outside the window. He's closing his eyes, and he's imagining it. One warm afternoon, the man by the window described a parade passing by. Although the other man couldn't hear the band, he could see it in his mind's eye as a gentleman by the window portrayed it with descriptive words. Unexpectedly, an alien thought entered his head. Why should he have all the pleasure of seeing everything while I never get to see anything? It didn't seem fair. So he was enjoying the scenes that his roommate would tell him about until that alien thought entered his head. It didn't seem fair. As the thought fermented, the man felt ashamed at first. But as the days passed and he missed seeing more sights, his envy eroded into resentment. It soon turned him sour. He began to brood and he found himself unable to sleep. He should be by that window. That thought now controlled his life. The envy, the resentment now controlled his life. And the joy he could experience by listening in and and imagining it in his head, that joy is now gone because of envy, because of resentment. Late one night as he lay staring at the ceiling, the man by the window began to cough. He was choking on the fluid in his lungs. The other man watched in the dimly lit room as a struggling man by the window groped for the button to call for help. Listening from across the room, he never moved. He never pushed his own button, which would have brought the nurse running. In less than five minutes, the coughing and choking stopped, along with the sound of breathing. Now there was only silence, deathly silence. The man by the window had died. The following morning, the day nurse arrived to bring water for their baths. When she found the lifeless body, the man by the window, she was saddened, and she called the hospital attendants to take it away. No words, no fuss. As soon as it seemed appropriate, the other man asked if he could be moved next to the window. The nurse was happy to make the switch. And after making sure he was comfortable, she left him alone. Now, for the first time, he could look out the window. Now, for the first time, he could see the parades, the pond, the lovers walking arm in arm. Now, she could see it all. Now, now he could see it all slowly, painfully. He propped himself up on one elbow to take his first look. Finally, he would have the joy of seeing it all himself. He strained to look out the window beside the bed. It faced a blank wall. There was never anything outside the window. The man who was able to prop himself up and look out the window, he imagined it to help brighten his day and brighten the other person's day. He was in a horrible, hard circumstance, and he made the best of that bad circumstance. And in Philippians, we see Paul doing the same. 
We're going to see probably in two weeks, the Apostle Paul saying, hey, don't worry about me. I'm able to be a witness to the Praetorian Guard. They're chained to me. Paul is thankful. He's joyful in a dungeon type of prison. And later on, he'll exhort us to do the same, make the best of a bad circumstance. Which reminds me, I want to say one other thing about worship music and things like that. Sometimes we may be, we don't know how to sing. That's okay, meditate on the words. Focus on, that's what matters. Focus on the words that we're singing to the Lord. That's okay. Oftentimes, when we face anxieties and depressions and hardship, we lash out at the wrong things. Sometimes I hear people upset or complaining about changes or things in the church when in reality, I believe they're depressed in their own life and they're attacking the wrong thing. We all face change. If you have dust in your house, that's change. That's dead skin cells falling off our bodies. We all face change. (laughs) It is. So as we look at this passage, we notice the Apostle Paul finding joy. Notice his joy. Notice his unity. Look at it. So my theme today, Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the Philippians. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11, and we're going to see Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the Philippians. In my applications today, pray like Paul. Have affections for God and others like Paul and be joyful. Pray like Paul. Have affections for God and others like Paul and be joyful. Affections, that's a love. If you're following the fill in the blanks in the bulletin, there's a fill in the blank page. And if you're OCD like me about making every blank, uh, the first one is affections. And if, and if you miss any, see me after and I'll make sure you got them. So Paul gives thanks in prayer. Look at verses three through five. We're gonna, walk, we're gonna rock, walk right through this passage in what's called expository way. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He is thanking God. Notice that. He is thanking God. He is thanking God as he remembers them. It seems that Paul has a special relationship with the church at Philippi. We see that right here. And and so the question is, in application, do we thank God as we think of other people? He is being thankful for them. He's not writing to them saying, my situation is horrible. This is horrible. I can't believe I'm here. It smells bad. It's cold. It's damp. There's bats flying around. I think I just saw a wolf spider, and that would be me, or a snake. He's not doing any of that. Look what he's saying. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And in verse 4, he continues. He is thanking God always when he prays. He is making his prayer with joy. By the way, as I've said, joy is a dominant theme in Philippians. We see joy referenced in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 1, verse 25, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 28, chapter 2, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 10. If you don't remember that, that's okay. I'm just telling you, joy is a dominant theme in Philippians. When you see, when you see repetition, it is important. Just like when you're at school or at work or, or talking to a babysitter or whatever, and they repeat time and time again, this is important, this is important, give the medicine at this time, get the Simon, at this time, if it's repeated a lot, it's probably important. Joy is repeated a lot. And he's writing about joy from what I would see as a horrible circumstance that he's in. 
I mean, can you imagine? This is one of Paul's last letters. If you look up 2 Corinthians 11 later, you can see all the sufferings he's gone through, being shipwrecked a night and a day at sea, being stoned and left for dead, being being beaten with rods. They would call it 39 lashes minus one, but that was a Jewish thing. For the Romans, they might've given way more lashes than that. Can you imagine not only being in a dungeon type Roman prison, but being there right after being beaten? They're not giving you anything for your wounds. I can't imagine the type of situation he was in. And he's writing about joy. And we see the repetition of the adjective all or every, and there's also the adverb always. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer. And he's making his prayer with joy. It comes off choppy in the ESV translation, but if you look at another translation, the, the New American Standard Bible, he, it, it, it translates it, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Always making my prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He is always thanking God for his remembrance of them. He is always offering prayers with joy. And this happens in every prayer for them. In verse five, Paul shares that he is thankful for their partnership in the gospel. And we see later in Philippians chapter four, verses 10 through 20, that they partnered with him financially. They supported the gospel ministry. Are we partnering in the gospel? That's another application. Are we partnering in the gospel? At Bethel, we quit passing the plate a few years ago. We have offering boxes and you can give online, you can send in. But you know, when we're Christians, we find out in Psalm 50 and all throughout the Bible, God owns everything. God owns it all, and, and, and God calls us to give back, to give back to his work. Are we partnering in the gospel? Are you giving to the church? That's between you and God. I don't know who gives what, but I'm just putting a little challenge out there and saying Bethel Friends is supported by actually very few of our congregation. I encourage you, if you haven't done that, to take a step in faith and trust the Lord. Next, we see that God will complete the work he began. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He, he who began a good work. So the point, the question is, who began the work? Who began the work in us? As Christians, who began the work? Who do you think began the work? It is God. Paul is pointing back to God and saying, God began a good work in you. Notice the modifiers, it's a good work. God began a good work in you and he's saying he will bring it to completion. God is the one who initiates salvation. Look at John 6, 44. It's, it's in your notes so you could look it up or whatever. John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father, bless you by the way, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That's Jesus talking there saying, no one can come to Jesus. No one, can be, no one can be saved unless God the Father draws them to him. And then Jesus says, he will raise him up on the last day. God does the saving. God will, bring, God will also bring our salvation to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we respond to the Holy Spirit convicting us. It's called prevenient grace in theological terms. It's grace that goes before. We respond to the Holy Spirit drawing us, convicting us that we are a sinner in need of Savior, but God initiates that. And it's more literal that Jesus will perfect us 
until the day of Christ. He will keep working on us to grow in grace and godliness until Jesus comes again. Someday Jesus will come again. And he's going to keep working on us until he comes again. You know that Revelation ends with, come Lord Jesus, come. Are we looking forward to when he comes again? He will perfect us at that day. That's the hope of the world. God is at work and he will finish the work. Do we trust him? You know, we may not finish a job. We may start the job. I start lots of home improvement jobs and I don't finish them because I'm horrible at them. But I did finish my driveway yesterday just because I like getting in the garage. But, right, (laughs) but... God will finish a job. That's what Philippians 1, 6 is saying. He will perfect us in the last day. He will make all things right. Now look at verses seven through eight. Look at verses seven through eight. And in verses seven through eight, we see Paul's affection for the Philippians. Paul's affection for the Philippians. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. Listen to this, I love it. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That is amazing. God is my witness, I yearn for you, I miss you, I wanna see you again, I love you. I wanna be with you. And he says, God's my witness of that. I like what Chuck Swindoll says about this passage. He says, his memory of them made him smile. Paul's memory of the Philippians made him smile. Swindoll says, meaning what? What were Paul's happy memories? He had no regrets. He, he nursed no ill feelings. Feelings. He struggled through, un, through no unresolved conflicts. When he looked back over a full decade and thought of the Philippians, he laughed. I wonder how many pastors can say that about former churches they have served. This is still Chuck Swindoll. He says, could, could, could you say that about former friends you have had, that the memory made you smile? Or, or could you say that about places where you have worked? Are yours happy memories? Unfortunately, the memory of certain people makes us churn. When we call them to mind, they bring sad or disappointing mental images. Paul knew no such memories from his days in Philippi. Amazingly, he could not remember one whom he would accuse or feel ill toward, not even those who threw him in prison or those who stood in a courtroom and made accusations against him. He entertained only good memories of Philippi. Positive memories make life so much lighter. And smiles and laughter really are the best medicine. If we're going around grumpy, thinking the worst of every situation, we are going to be brought down. You know that when you just smile, even a forced smile, it releases different neurotransmitters in the brain that bring happiness. It's amazing. Look at that. So Paul holds them in his heart. Paul has a relationship with them, and he's going to say why. They are fellow, fellow partakers of God's grace. And this is true where he is currently. Remember, he's in prison, but he's saying, you are fellow partakers. You're still fellow partakers of God's grace. And it's true in his gospel work. Get this, Paul's imprisonment would have been a source of great shame in the ancient world. Paul being imprisoned would have been a source of great shame in the ancient world. And yet, the Philippians stood in solidarity with him. Even though he's in prison, the Philippians stood in solidarity with him. 
This would no doubt been, this would have been great encouragement for him as he shared the good news with his captors and with the judges. Verse eight says he yearns for them. He even says with the affections of Christ Jesus, are we thankful for other people that are around us? Now look at verses nine through 11 and we see Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Look at that prayer. He's really praying. And, we, and in this prayer, we see his heart's desire for them. He wants their love to abound more and more. Can we pray that, that for those we know? Can we pray that their love may abound more and more? Certainly first with love for Jesus and, and certainly love for others as well. And then he prays that they have knowledge and, and, and discernment. We all need knowledge. We need discernment in this life, don't we? And, and, and verse 10 gives purpose. Verse 10 gives purpose so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We can't approve what is excellent without that love and without that knowledge and discernment. We need that knowledge and discernment to approve what is excellent. Paul wants to see them pure and blameless at the day of Christ. The day of Christ, when Jesus makes all things new, when he makes all things right, he wants to see them pure and blameless. He prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And I think that comes from the fruit of the Spirit, which you can see in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness only comes through Jesus. See John 15, 8. And Ephesians 2.10 for that. This is about the Holy Spirit gradually working in our lives until we go to heaven or Jesus comes again. Are we eager for the Holy Spirit to use the word of God and the people of God? They're all important. The word of God and the people of God to gradually work in our life to grow us up like him until we go to heaven. And this is to the glory and praise of God. I wanna take a few moments for applications. Do we thank God as we think of other people? Do we thank God as we think of other people? No man or woman is an island. We need other people. We're in a day and age where we think virtual relations can substitute. They can't. We need other people. Are we thankful for other people? Chuck Smendall shares this really great illustration. He says, if you have not yet read John Powell's, why am I afraid to tell you who I am? you are missing a great experience. There is a section in the book that is worth a great deal of your time and attention. And this is what's powerful. It's where the author presents the five levels of communication, which he says are like concentric circles from the most shallow and superficial level, which is the outer circle, to the deepest, most intimate level, which is the smallest circle at the core. Most of us have very shallow relationships with other people. We don't go into that deep core. So level five, the outer circle, the outer circle is superficial. It's the cliche conversation. On this level, we talk in cliches such as, how are you? How is your family? But we're expecting a very simple response. Good. How are you? You know, very simple response. It's very cliche. That's level five. Level four is where we report facts about each other. They're facts. 
We remain contented to tell others what so-and-so has said or done. We offer no personal, we offer no personal self-revelatory commentary on these facts, but simply report them. And this is the realm of gossip and petty, meaningless little tales about others. So level five, superficial. How are you? Level four, simple you know, dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, you know, but, but, but it's not deep. It's not deep. Level three leads us into the areas of ideas and judgments. And rarely do people communicate at this deeper level. They're able, you are all able, but they're not willing. So level five, just to review, you know, very cliche conversation. How are you? Level four, just the facts. Level three, we're getting into ideas and judgments. And, and, and he says, as I communicate my ideas, I will be watching you carefully. I will want to test the temperature of the water before I leap in. I want to be sure that you accept me with my ideas, judgments, and decisions. If you raise your eyebrows or narrow your eyes, if you yawn or look at your watch, I will probably retreat to safer ground. I will run for the cover of silence or change the subject of the conversation. That's level three. Level two moves into feelings. If you really want to know who I am, I must tell you about my stomach, my gut level, my gut level, as well as my head. My ideas, judgments, and decisions are quite conventional. So level two gets into feelings, and there's level one. Level one. Level one is the most personal, intimate form of communication. All deep and authentic friendships, and especially the union of those who are married, must be based on absolute openness and honesty. Among close friends or between partners in marriage, there will come from time to time a complete emotional and personal communion. Such depth of communication, which Paul seems to have practiced on a regular basis, brings a satisfaction and a joy like few things on earth. It seems like Paul had level one communication with the church at Philippi, even as he wrote to them. And there's a little challenge here. I encourage us as a congregation, we need deeper communication with each other. We need to get real with each other. We need to pray for one another. We need to share our prayer needs. We need to humbly talk to each other. We need that as Christians. We need to let each other bear one another's burdens. That's what it means to be the bride of Christ. That's what it means to be the family of God. And we see that with this letter of Philippians. So let's move on now. Do we thank God for reminding us of each other as we pray? We put prayer lists out there. We have it actually on the website. It's just a running list now. If you need access, let me know. Pray for one another. Lift each other up. Check up on each other. Encourage one another. And do we pray with joy? Are we remembering each other in prayer? Are we partnering in the gospel? We see in verse five that Paul was thankful for their partnership in the gospel. He was thankful for their partnership in the gospel. They partner together. There were studies done back in the 1980s, you know, the good old days. Um, back in the 1980s. The good old days changes with each generation. I know, I understand. Back in the 1980s, there was a study done, and if somebody was asking Christians about their commitment to the church, they viewed commitment to the church as Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Now, if you ask people if they're committed to the church, it's a couple times a month. Some of you 
think you're committed to the church and you're really part of the church. And I'm glad for you to call this church home, but you really are disconnected to the church because you're here a couple of times a, a month and, and just for an hour and, and you really don't know. I, I know because I hear you ask about people and I'm like, yeah, they're a shut-in now. They haven't been at church in a year or different things. You know, you're not really connected. And I wanna encourage you, get connected to the church. I used to think it was great because our Sunday school numbers are good. And I really do. Sunday school is very important. Small groups are very important. But if you're in Sunday schools and, and small groups, but you're not serving in ministry and you can, some people really can't because of physical and other limitations. And it's a lot just to make it a Sunday school. But if you're in Sunday school and you're not serving in various ministries, that's not good. We're all called to go a step further and serve and help out the church family in various ways. And I would love to give you a spiritual gift survey and talk with you about your spiritual gifts, how you can go deeper, get connected to the church. The church is a bride of Christ and we need to be close to the church. We need to truly be in fellowship with one another, encouraging one another, helping one another out. Next, how do we feel about the gospel? Paul is thankful for their partnership in the gospel. If you believe these truths about the gospel, say amen. I'm gonna read some scriptures and a couple truths and I want you to respond with amen. Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him? Amen. Do you believe John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Amen. The gospel. Have you really believed the gospel and, and, and are you committed to the gospel? We're not called to just easy believism. We're called to Luke 9, 23. Jesus says, anyone can come after me. Anyone can follow, but he or she must deny his or herself. That means Steve no longer exists. I only exist in Jesus. Take up my cross. That's an instrument of death and follow we're called to commit to Jesus, to make him Lord of our life. And if you haven't, I encourage you, don't miss out on the Jesus, the life that Jesus offers only through being followers of him, living with him, organizing our affairs around him. Philippians 1.6 shows that God does a saving and he will also complete the saving. We must give him the glory and we must trust him. We must have affections for others who are in gospel work with us. Do we yearn for other Christians like Paul did in verse eight? Do we yearn for our church family? Do we model our prayer off of how Paul prayed in verses nine through 11? You could look at that and you could pray for others just like Paul prayed. Do we want to love Jesus? To have affections for Jesus, to treasure Jesus. I would highly commend a book. It came out about a year ago by John Piper called What is Saving Faith? And he makes a case, saving faith is treasuring Jesus, having love for Jesus. Do we want to be pure and blameless, to grow up in him? Or do we want to stay baby Christians? Verse 11, do we want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness? Do we pray, Lord, may the fruit of the spirit be present in me. May I have love. May I have joy. May I have peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do we glorify God and do we praise him? There are so many awesome applications as we go through the church, the letter to the church at Philippi, Philippians, into us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This letter of joy, this letter of unity, it is just so very powerful. I began the sermon talking about trying to make the best of every circumstance, right? Being, being thankful, the guy who imagined out of the window, you know, seeing parades pass by and all that stuff. And, 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 and that is so very, very important. I wanna end 
just with prayer following these applications. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thought of just different applications, such as the Nicene Creed that we were going to read. But I think, Lord God, the best way to end this message is prayer. Lord God, the letter of Philippians, I see as such an encouraging letter here. We see the Apostle Paul in prison, but, but being thankful, being grateful, being joyful. But even in that joy and that thanks that we see, we also see applications. Because oftentimes we are not. Oftentimes we really are disconnected to our church family. Oftentimes we're, we're really even disconnected from you. Oftentimes we're grumbling and complaining. And Lord, it's a reminder to me that the only way we can live this Christian life is through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. The only way we can have that joy, that unity that Paul writes about, is through the Holy Spirit within us. It's through that fruit of righteousness. It's, it's through the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So Lord God, I pray for myself and the church family. As we close this message, I pray for myself and the church family that you would just give us a full baptism, a full immersion with this gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. So that tomorrow or today or the next day and so on, when we would usually be upset and grumble and, and think negative, the Holy Spirit's prompting us to think positive. When we usually bring disunity, the Holy Spirit's convicting us and we're being, we're being united. Maybe the Holy Spirit would convict us to call up a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe they're not even from Bethel, but they're a close brother and sister in Christ and, and share a heart with them and ask for help in prayer because we're stronger together. So I ask, Lord God, the Holy Spirit would take and apply this message. Most importantly, apply these passages, these verses from the Apostle Paul. Apply them to our lives. And first and foremost, Lord, if there's someone gathered here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray the Holy Spirit prick their heart, and today they would confess they're a sinner in need of a Savior. They would believe in you as the one and only Savior, and they would trust in you, and they would commit to you. And Lord, we know we can tell you of our commitment to you in a simple prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I confess I've sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today, I'm trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Today, Lord, I'm committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. Lord God, help us all living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.